You're listening to the second to first episode of season three of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This season of the podcast is going to be about strict, rules-focused Christianity not working, but it is not an attack on faith. It's going to be about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It's also going to be about depression, words, and music. Each episode will be me and random other people pontificating and ruminating around themes addressed in a specific song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode Zero, A Coming Together of Lives. In seasons one and two, which I made earlier this year, I seemed to have something together that worked pretty well. So, like with New Coke in the 80s and the Star Wars sequel trilogy more recently, not to mention all the new Star's Trek and Ghostbusters's, I thought as this strategy went so well for all of them, the smartest thing for me to also do would be to change my formula a bit. No, I'm not going to pass the lightsaber, proton pack, lightning hammer, or vibranium shield of the Wicked Podcast onto the deserving hands of a previously marginalized person, thereby making myself look upstanding, virtuous, empathetic, and modern. Because it's mine, my precious. My own. But I will have some of those people on the podcast. A bit. While still hogging the spotlight and making it as much about me and my music and miscellaneous grievances as possible. Because one of the themes that came out in the two previous seasons of the Wicked Podcast was how sterile it can be to always create alone, how much color and interest can be added to art, to thought and feeling, to an experience if more than one person is involved. Obviously, it's kind of masturbatory, kind of fruitless, kind of sterile, kind of solitary to be all by yourself when you're doing something like this. With real podcasts, you have two guys. Sometimes there's one guy who interviews a different second person each week, or two guys talking about stuff, sometimes interviewing a third person. And the more different kinds of people you have, the more variety it adds. I just had me. All me, all of the time. Before I attempted a podcast with my books, I found that once I filled the third one, I was a teenage Pharisee, with other people's comments and experiences, suddenly I had something more alive and far broader in scope than I'd had before. When I did the audiobook version of it, that really took off. It was as simple as getting people to do surveys, chat, or comment on the internet, and encouraging them to read their comments into their computers or phones and send them to me. That way, in the audiobook, the voice you were listening to changed from time to time. When he was kicked out of the exclusive Brethren at 20, Craig Hoyle didn't know how to change a television channel. He'd never heard of Leonardo DiCaprio, played a video game, or visited an art gallery. University and overseas travel were banned. Mike, the Bible is the book, the inspired word of God. It's not just a book. It's good to be loved. I cling to the only right place baggage and find I am brethren to the core. I hate where we are because they're pushing one right place dogma gospel hall style. But I can't feel comfortable elsewhere, even if they treat us with love, because it's not right enough. Hailser decided we couldn't marry until we were 20, instead of right out of high school like they were all doing. I was 17 with raging hormones and hoping to marry as soon as I could. My first recollection of music in my life was when we went to the Sunday school picnic in Glasgow. I never had too much of that view, even when in the Taylor Brethren or out. My personal God was always more sensible and benign and understanding than that. When God works, he works through church groups. This gave listeners a break from all of the me. So long as it's not too scattered and random, it's less monotonous done this way. 
All of that stuff is still an option, obviously. And during the third age of everlasting COVID, we've gotten very used to talking to people on Zoom and seeing people doing videos together on YouTube when really the two people talking are on completely different continents. We're trying to not feel alone any way we can, importing people's images and voices to make us feel less so. So for season three, I'm going to attempt more of that again. I don't have a podcast co-host I can have a conversation with for each episode, but I'm going to try to do my best to talk to a bunch of other people about what each episode addresses and try to edit it together into something coherent. What I did was take the different experiences and themes that sparked the various songs under discussion for the Death in Tiny Spoonfuls album and kind of convert them into general thought-provoking questions about those experiences and themes. I put these all over the internet, and I offered a Q&A, or Frequently Asked Questions component, allowing people to ask me anything at all about a Christian upbringing gone wrong, depression, or making music. Then I put that on the internet, too, and having cast my bread upon the waters, I waited to see how many days it would take for anything to return unto me. Well, after a white-knuckled day or two of nothing, it didn't take long. Stuff started to happen. People really started reaching out to the general questions only very tangentially related to the song topics. Coming this season on the Wicked Podcast. The first time I think I talked with you was uh, Snow in June had just come out and it was right in front of Ottawa U. Wow. Well, that was, uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, we've been working on, uh, the Northern Pikes have been working on a record we started it in the fall of 2019 and it was really, it was supposed to be uh, kind of a 30th anniversary uh, tribute or whatever to the Snow and June album because it came out in 1990. Mm -hmm. And so we started in, in the fall of 2019 and made a really good dent. I had a drunk driving accident where I almost killed a guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been arrested seven times for public intoxication and fighting and, and, and OWI. Uh, I had uh, lost everything, man. And, and I, I, my, my family was like, we're done with you, man. You know, what the hell happened to you? Because I didn't, I didn't go into the military like this. I come back with some mess. My name is Angel DeSantis, and I grew up in a cult called the Children of God. And I was born and raised in it. Yes, so there were many, many music, musically talented who were not allowed to uh, progress and uh, in, in many disciplines. They were I don't know with with Mormons if bringing out strangers to try to convert them, like bringing them out to church, was much mm -hmm. of a thing. One Sunday a month, we would have lunch after church, and you could invite people to come with you. We would do um, Wednesday nights were youth nights, and you're always encouraged to bring a friend with you. The missionaries we were always around and ready to chat with whoever wanted to listen. That is part of the reason why we're having this battle between science and pseudoscience because. People don't realize that just because someone is eloquent and charismatic and seems to know what they're talking about, it means nothing. And there was about four or five of us who just decided that we would get a little bit of LSD. Didn't take a ton, but just enough to be, let's get a nice thing going on and, and, and we'll enjoy the ride home. So we didn't know we were going to get this detour. So we go into this church and now it's like amping up and we're kind of starting to feel this. Suddenly it's the faith healing. We're seeing people come up and going like, this lady's been in a wheelchair for 10 years and we'll, we'll command the power of Christ to remove the demons from you. Like I will say this. I think my dad was full of shit. I don't I even know what he believed. I never saw him care. 
the like he wasn't someone who was really he you know he wasn't sitting at home praying to god or crying to god over his children or any of that shit or anyone else like he was doing a job he was saying the right things he was good at talking about six months where i drank a lot including one really bad night where i ended up at my friend's house she was driving um we got to her house and i threw up all over her bathroom and in my memory there was like puke four inches deep on the floor um <laughs> i don't you think it was we met in the dominican republic in a big brethren event mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. both going for different kind of both for the correspondence school but yeah. we didn't know each other i never yeah. heard about we, each other before yeah. and you know you fell in love and um obviously this had to be kept a, a secret because you knew that that was not going to be allowed and it wasn't going to be forgiven i knew what could happen to me right. if i was open and Just honest you know you know like even what i remember when people approached me to say are you gay are you struggling i always deny it because i thought i think i can be fixed but also I don't want to be open because these people will punish me. Is that the appeal of Christianity somewhat that you know, and so you just know it and you're correct. You're smart. It's what's right. And so that's, what's the appeal to me is I know what I'm doing is quote unquote, right. And so. And it makes you not need to think about it. Right. Because you know, who am I to think about what's right or not? Do I make up what's right for me? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not my own. All the girls that I thought were pretty in high school, when I saw them on Facebook 35 years later, they were all not hot anymore. It's really weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm sure that's true of me too, but um, yeah. I got better looking on what does that so mean? So many other guys already had their own motorcycles. So I guess they were cool. But not you. No. When I was growing up, I have vivid, vivid memories of just getting on my bicycle, I must have been eight, nine, 10, whatever, and just riding around the neighborhood and exploring, like really exploring the neighborhood. I don't believe in evil. I, I think that evil is a bit of a cop-out. I, I really, really don't. I, I, I also, I'm, and this isn't a particularly unpopular opinion, but I think that we're all gray. Uh, I think stories about good and, and evil and uh, and villains and heroes are awesome. They're a lot of fun, but life's just not like that. I was 16 and my boyfriend's family were Latter-day Saints. His parents invited me to their church one week and I said, sure. We all sat in a circle and all of the women took turns talking about friends and loved ones who don't accept Jesus Christ and they cried and prayed for them, for those people to convert. And there was a big discussion about how heartbreaking it was that they knew people who didn't go to their church. And that was when I got the culty vibes and quickly asked where the bathroom was and then roamed the hallways for the remainder of Sunday school. For example, the purity culture that was touted, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of discussion about maintaining sexual purity and a lot of guidelines about how to do that. But of course, behind closed doors, um, now I know that there were a lot of problems with marital rape 
Um, there were a lot of problems with people sleeping with underage individuals. There were children who were being molested. A more recent group that wasn't the full cult, but had cultish themes uh, where we were made, if you wanted to remain, to reflect the head person. We had to be like them and we had to be restrained and just sit there so that we could receive the light from them. So if you had joy, but it wasn't time for joy, you would be squashed. I do remember being shamed once by my aunt for listening to a worldly song that was popular at the time. That was, there's a Spanish style of music called reggaeton, which is kind of like a little bit of rap, but also- It's bitterness, I think. I mean, it has to be bitterness on some level. I think a lot of the times that comes from envy. That's been my experience, I would say, is, is somebody sees somebody else thriving or enjoying something or whatever, and they don't have that. And they don't have the tool, I guess, to go and try to find something that they like in that same way. They can sort of feel affirmed uh, with this idea that if everybody else is, everybody else is making these grand mistakes and you're sort of the keeper of good living. And so what you're going to do is tear everybody else down. That might make you feel a little bit better about yourself. I don't think it works. Oh, that's such a good question because everything was embarrassing to me. Um, even walking up the sidewalk, um, being told that I had to wear my head covering, the veil weird thing that we had to wear as women. So Actually, I'm working out this experimental neo-baroque piece whilst summering in the south of France. As usual, some outgoing people were looking for an opportunity to tell their stories, while others surprised themselves by deciding to weigh in, though it was a big leap outside their comfort zone. And I had to explain many things to them unscripted, with them interacting, and I found that often I was tempted to use my voice when I was talking off the cuff to someone, rather than the scripted, properly recorded bits like this one. Apart from those fun folks who agreed to play along, most people steered well clear. In particular, anyone who felt that a Christian upbringing was or would have been very valuable, and anyone who felt that church is still a worthwhile part of their week, month, or year, mostly avoided talking to someone like me, like the proverbial, in fact, like the present, plague. And some told me they didn't want their relatives, in-laws, or fellow church folk hearing what they really thought and felt. You, you go, go for, for it, it, they told me. Keep, Keep doing, doing it. it. Someone's, Someone's got, got to. to. Just not me. Many people's approach to religion and religious problems in general is to think it's all pretty stupid, contentious, and a waste of time. So you need to be polite and never make the silly people feel as silly as they truly are by doing anything so crass as pointing out how silly all of it really is. Just like religious people, many atheists feel that people seeking spiritual or religious answers to life have missed the true path of enlightenment and lived their daily lives in darkness that they just don't get it, have missed salvation by the rationalism of the Enlightenment, and now there's no talking to the simple-minded, stuck-in-the-middle-ages, shallow, irrational, often bigoted, narrow-minded folks. So the thing to do is to feel superior and humor them, to condescend kindly, to assume they can't and won't ever really understand. Not like you. But some of us aren't all wise like that. We are willing to talk about this stuff with all sorts of people, and in my case, I'm not critiquing someone else's odd little religion or culture when I have these chats. We're talking about our own, together. Previously on the Wicked Podcast. Let me recap some of the stuff asserted in the previous podcast seasons. Here goes. 
A Christian upbringing isn't always all it's cracked up to be. People grow up Christian and still suffer mental illness, domestic violence, substance abuse, sexual assault, and all the rest of it. A Christian upbringing can teach you that we all screw up, but that we're all accepted by God and Christian communities alike, or it can teach you that you are inadequate, apostate, corrupted, corrupting, and wrong in every single little thing you might ever think, feel, hope for, or dream of. A Christian upbringing can try to allow inspiration from the Bible to flow in and lift everything higher, or it can try to crush everyone underfoot using cherry-picked bits of and odd interpretations of the scriptures to allow people to indulge their own personal emotional baggage, fear, disgust, and hate for people who look, believe, vote, think, feel, or f*** differently than they do. A church can be a place that tries to help people explore God and the Bible in their own way and time, or it can be a brainwashing, indoctrinating system that all members are subjected to weekly to keep their minds configured to the required shape. It can be a way of pooling resources to do good, or it can be a fiercely competitive corporate system that involves arguing endlessly about mission or vision, committees, titles, promotions, branding, worship styles, leadership opportunities, membership growth strategies, and all things that pertaineth to prestige and paychecks. When it comes to depression, some Christian communities view depression as a lifelong struggle that some people will have to live with through no fault of their own, and therefore something to be sympathetic about, while others can take it as a threat to their church claim to be able to make everyone high on Jesus, to be the ecclesiastical ice cream truck arriving every Sunday bringing joy and delight and a jingly little song to everyone with the always works church cure for everything handed out to the delighted children of the block. It would be simple to think that if everyone reads the same Bible, everyone will find the same things in there. But take it from an English teacher. That doesn't even happen with assignment instruction sheets, let alone Macbeth. Art and life aren't like that. People live separate realities in proximity alone. In order to connect, people have to agree upon some kind of middle ground, meeting space, or area of agreement and try to deal that way. My sister and I were raised in the same house by the same people, but all questions of age, genes, and gender aside, us having different personalities and approaching people and situations very differently meant we had extremely different experiences growing up. But church didn't work out for either of us. My approach is to talk about it, a lot, with everyone. Her approach, generally, is to avoid thinking about it much at all, using meditation and exercise if necessary. Unlike me, she's always in amazing cardio condition as a result, but I don't think she's any happier or calmer about it all than I am. Nothing works like magic, but we all do what we do. One of the things I quickly realized when starting to talk to different people for season three was that in some ways we're all very much the same too. For example, I'd talk to people and feel like we had pretty much exactly the same sort of experiences growing up, only to find they'd been raised Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or some form of very charismatic Christianity or part of an actual cult. Very different religions. But the differences in doctrine didn't seem to matter a bit when it came to screwing up kids with an ideology. Even atheist parents can thoroughly mess up their children, so long as they ruthlessly, obsessively force some ideology, fad, or mania on them and make enough of their talk and their week revolve entirely around it. One of the worst things you can do to kids is cut them off from joy, from art and expressing feelings, from other kids, from events going on within earshot, from experiences outside the approved circle of supposedly like-minded believers. 
Another is to bombard them continually with a tsunami of alarmists. The world is burning because of the gays, global warming, abortion, QAnon, the patriarchy, and racism, and we all need to repent messages to the exclusion of them ever having some kind of life and moments of fulfillment before it does burn. Of course, you can raise kids to live in daily fear of the sun, the air, the water, food, comic books, pop stars, and Dungeons and Dragons. Big government, big pharma, corporations, communism, and systemic racism. But most of all, you can raise kids to live out the rest of their lives fearing other people, especially diverse people. People with political, religious, social, aesthetic, and even nutritional and medical beliefs that are a different color than your own. So seem foreign and threatening to you. Dangerous worldviews that seem to come from a very different place, though they're seen in people who grew up across the street from you. To recap about depression, it sucks. And pills, medication, meditation, exercise, and talk therapy don't magically fix it for anybody. But if you try to avoid dealing with it, you might die. To recap about music, I never quite seem to stop picking away at my old songs, even though no one's out there waiting for me to complete them. And my skills are pretty limited. I'm not trying to become a session guitarist, singer, or recording engineer. I'm trying to express my feelings and imagination in a way that's not otherwise being pursued anywhere in my life. And I'm trying to make sure it's still therapeutic and from the gut and not turn it into work or math too much. As to my childhood, the worst thing that ever happened to me was all the nothing. The most evil stuff I ever saw done was done with a shrug and a blank face and mostly bore the label, oh well... What are you going to do? I suppose you have all the answers. No, I don't. Not big ones anyway. But some of us are looking for tiny answers to this and that, here and there, wherever we can find them. Some of us don't believe anything or anyone is ever going to be perfect, but still, we're trying to work things out. Trying to work things out, part one. Three approaches to disagreement. As usual, I'm trying to follow that piece of ancient wisdom, know thyself. Maybe me talking out attempts to understand myself and my life better will help others do the same with their quite different ones. So, in aid of that, there's this whole thing, an added, occasional feature to the podcast this season. I read a thing recently about three basic roles one can play in social interactions, particularly when one isn't happy with how things are going, or someone in the interaction isn't anyway. Obviously, you can be passive. You don't voice or seek your own needs or wishes. You can avoid commenting, refuse to give your opinion, and so on. You can try to smooth everything over, get people to be quiet, and generally stop people from voicing their needs at all. You might be very unhappy, of course, but you insist on not speaking or acting to change that, and you want everyone else to do the same. Groups like passive people Passive people don't complain or seem to need anything much. They're like chairs. The room needs some of those. Or you can be assertive. You voice your side of things, how you see it, and say what you need with an obvious understanding and even openness to there being another side and others seeing things differently and maybe having needs that aren't getting met yet either. You advertise your willingness to collaborate, cooperate, or negotiate because you have needs or views that you know how to work towards satisfying. You're trying to get people to buy in. You're willing to give something to them, too. This takes self-control, work, and time, but it might get you somewhere. Ruth says that women raised in the Plymouth Brethren were not encouraged to put their needs into words. I was certainly not raised 
to be assertive. Absolutely not. I was raised to be very passive. Like that was the way that a good Christian girl was supposed to be and never speak up for her needs. I'm still really, really struggling to break free of that. I would argue that men weren't either, unless we were top dog. Passivity was next to godliness for all of us, and so is the rule of the day, again, unless you were top dog. And we didn't like conflict, so if you were involved in any in our church, we tended to kick you out or have a church division splitting into two groups so we could have some peace and quiet in there, some unity. And then there's that third approach to conflict. You can be aggressive, domineering, bossy, defensive, antagonistic, accusative, insulting, judgmental, or generally combative. You're angry because your needs haven't been met, and so you don't want to play along or work things out at all. You don't even want to hear other people's side of things. You hold out no hope of mutually beneficial outcomes to any talking, so you won't listen. If you don't want to get caught being obviously aggressive, you can always instead get nasty and be passive-aggressive. That can be a way of pretending you're being passive when really you're handling things your own way in there swinging the low blows. I knew what Ruth would say when I asked her if Plymouth Brethren women raised to be passive. It was almost like a requirement that Plymouth Brethren women had to be passive-aggressive. The only way that you could be assertive. One time a church pastor who was being passive-aggressive, and I kind of joked about mm -hmm. the fact that he's passive-aggressive, and without mm -hmm. any irony whatsoever, he said, well, better than being aggressive. Well, goodness. And he's somebody that I would say doesn't know how to be assertive either. So that's the oh. problem is he'll be passive. He'll be passive aggressive. He will not be aggressive. He will not be assertive. He doesn't deal. And mm -hmm. whether you're the pastor of a church or the vice principal of a high school, or you are the manager of a department store. So a question I think you should be asked is, are you comfortable dealing with conflict? And if you yeah. can't deal with conflict, and in fact, you just go full on aggressive whenever there's any conflict going on, or passive whenever mm -hmm. there's any conflict going on, I don't think you can mm -hmm. hold that job. No, I don't think you can at all. Things come down to needing to negotiate sometimes. Yes. We're talking about two different brethren divisions. The one in 89 didn't affect us very much around mm -hmm. here, the one in 91 profoundly. And I think that in both cases, you had people who almost felt it was beneath them to have to negotiate. And they tried to bully people. Yeah. Bully them with, with the scripture. Bully Sometimes. them with status. Rumor has it, uh, someone punched somebody. So somebody went full on aggress oh. aggressive without ever being assertive in the right. middle of that. My sister Debbie has never really listened to or really understood what exactly my podcast is. So I thought I'd put her on it to help with that. I think it's just convenient because um, passive aggression makes uh, a lot of people feel a lot more comfortable than straight out aggression. So it's really about people um, denying what the conflict, the severity of the conflict and um, taking the easy route. I, I agree. Like, I think that people want to be that people want to hurt somebody but they don't feel that they can get away with being seen to be aggressive so passive aggression is a way to hurt people but somehow get away with it there was so much passive aggressiveness that it for me the biggest trauma that i've had to work on over and over again to heal is trust mm -hmm. and it's trust in that the people that i'm working with even within the school system that they're not you know, going to stab me in the back or that they're not going to somehow or what that person said wasn't a, you know, somehow a jab like the the damage from the passive aggressiveness 
is much more insidious than if I had just been punched in the face over and over again. I would add that I have found Christian men in general to be perhaps more characterized by, you know, at least you should know, and passive aggression in general than their unchurched counterparts. Either way, either being overtly or else bitchily aggressive, going aggressive means you don't have to negotiate. You assume it's a fight, so you fight the person. You try to destroy them and win, either by intimidating them or shutting them up, down or out, or shouting them down or accusing them or canceling them or simply arguing your own position and unmet needs with no willingness to grant that anyone else has any valid ones at all or any need to voice them, and so you're not listening. You know, like Twitter, but in an actual room. That aggressive, combative place is one that if either side goes to and stays there, nothing much is likely going to get done. If either side has stopped listening, it's not a conversation anymore. Most of us navigate these three different modes on a monthly basis. If I'm at a social thing or working or whatever, and someone proposes or requests or generally introduces a new thing, if it has nothing to do with me, or I don't feel one way or the other about it, I remain passive. Some people can be so passive they're not only not paying attention, they might not even be awake. Like most people, I tend to be passive when I don't care, or when I don't see how I get to claim a right to negotiate anything at all. Maybe it's nothing to do with me, or I'm not part of it, or maybe I did something wrong, so I don't feel very assertive. Like most people, sometimes a demand for or announcement of change by someone might not only involve or affect me directly and significantly, it might be something I have a problem with. Unlike most people, with my upbringing, I'm not from a world where if someone says we're all going to do a thing, or that from now on no one is going to be allowed to do a thing, I can expect I'm going to be able to ignore this pronouncement and simply go on as before, not without incurring a bunch of wrath. Someone has spoken, has put something into words, so now it's real. I can't ignore it because it was spoken, and I heard it and understood what was now expected of me. With my upbringing, that's like a signed contract obligating me. You need to speak now or forever hold your peace when some kind of new structure is announced. Now, I can choose to be passive and not advocate for my concerns or needs or whatever. Sometimes I go that route, of course, probably less often than many people, though. Growing up, I lived the reality of having my agency increasingly taken from me every year older that I grew. So... I could choose to go full-on aggressive, objecting, insulting, getting defensive, or mocking, or even losing my temper and storming out, but I don't generally feel safe acting that way. Doesn't seem to get me what I want. Seems like the nuclear option. Once you press that nuclear button, if you keep pressing it on a weekly basis, it's going to either eventually get ignored or get you gone, with an easily explained reason as to why you're gone. You lost control. So you lost all credibility and respect, and eventually, you lost membership. Some people are confident and good with numbers. Not me. With me, it's words, so that's my default. If we're all sitting around comfortably, and someone yells, Okay, okay, okay guys, now, now we're all going to chug a bottle of ketchup, get up and dance around and put on clown shoes and sing a song about tolerance China and the evils of gluten and then have a group hug, everyone has to do it, I'm quite likely to not merely ignore this, but outright object to it, with my words, without causing a fight, usually simply announcing my unwillingness to do the thing, just so they know. Or I might even ask why we're possibly doing this to begin with. Note that neither of those involve me simply giving the outspoken person what they want, immediately and without further ado, 
nor do they involve me losing my temper or doing anything that's easy to object to as antisocial behavior of that order. But some people find it infuriating anyway. I get it. I'm not instantly just giving them what they want, and I'm not starting a fight with them either. Demonstrating agency tends to mean you view yourself as interacting as equals with the person who jumped up and made the announcement as to what everyone has to do now, like you think there's a negotiation possible. I avoid being in any room where there's no negotiation possible. All this can be really clearly seen in that anecdote I told in earlier sessions of the podcast, where I went to a church youth group thing as a very young teen, and as usual, all of the entertainment involved balls, grabbing them, hitting them, stuffing them places. I don't enjoy balls, and so when it was time for dodgeball, I was sitting it out. I didn't say anything, just sat away from it, didn't passively go along with it and play, didn't assertively suggest we do something else I had in mind, didn't aggressively express anger that sports ball was being played yet again and therefore I was bored yet again. But I was assertive enough to go sit by myself instead of running around blindly trying to avoid getting balls in the face like we were supposed to. So a kid's mom started an unwanted conversation with young teenage me and demanded to know why I wasn't playing. That's not passive. I'm not even sure it was assertive. I took it simply as pressure to do what people wanted without knowing or caring what my side of things was. The question wasn't really a question. It was an objection to how I was choosing to spend my evening. But it was worded as a question, so in my characteristically annoying way, honed by over a decade of dealing with a pretty controlling church and home life, I treated it like a question and answered it like one. I explained that dodgeball wasn't fun. Not for me. Not for a nearsighted kid who'd have to take off his glasses and play blind. That what I'd need to have fun was an activity that didn't involve things from my dad's gym office over there. Surprised to be pulled into point and counterpoint, the woman tried to convince me of her view. She said if I tried it, I'd like it. My father being my gym teacher, and the ball being from his equipment room, and this not being my first chance at a dodgeball game ever in my entire life, I said I was quite certain that I wouldn't. So, thwarted verbally, the middle-aged woman abandoned discussion, banked on my compliance and silent passivity, went to an aggressive power move, and matter-of-factly informed me that, okay, but everybody has to play. Presumably the adults there were exempt. I would definitely have played if it meant a chance to toss a volleyball into their teeth. The objecting woman didn't just look at me from across the room and decide I was weird and judge me or gossip or something. I'm sure she did that too. She came over, started a conversation uninvited, and put her displeasure with my choice and what she expected of me now into words. Well, I deal in words, and I have a knee-jerk, irritated response to pronouncements that start with the word everybody and end with has to. She'd claimed that everybody had to play, so I asked her if this was true. Yea, hath Robin Irwin and Margaret Covell said. So this kid's mom doubled down on it, saying yes, it was true. Everybody has to play. So I said no one had warned me of this being a rule, and if I'd been told it was, I certainly wouldn't have come, and so would leave now and leave them to it, and I began to. The woman hurriedly but reluctantly took back the rule, put into words that it wasn't actually a rule after all, put into words that my sitting out that game was something that she and the others were unhappy and uncomfortable with, but not to the point of actually making me play or actually letting me leave. The subtext was that I was failing to blend, and she'd kindly tried to make me do what it took to blend, and I dug my heels in and failed to blend, so I could just be alone. And she retreated, which is what I wanted to begin with. 
I'm annoying like that when anyone tries to push me around socially or in any other way. But that's pretty much how my church worked at ground level. You were free, of course, but making someone put their expectation of you into actual words was being stubborn and making yourself a nuisance. And you were free not to meet that expectation, of course, but we all knew what that made you, someone who wasn't inside the walls of our magic castle. Them outside rather than us in here, here in body only and probably for a very short time. Now that story shows just how stubborn and unthinkingly verbal and assertive I was even as a child, annoying to many, weird, needing everything put into words, wanting to know the ends of the unfinished sentences and then using them with more words, with completed sentences. Why couldn't I just, I mean, I was being so... I kept helping them finish those sentences. They really didn't like that. No one is a villain in that story, but people are different. Some of us insist upon it, even if it makes us alone. About music production. I start art much of the time with words or an idea or story, never the music. Sometimes a phrase like, Hello, dead people, do you sleep well at night? Or do you lie awake thinking you could have done better? Or, in hollow halls of solitude, a sullen silence sits. Or, there be great immovables, once men now turned to rocks. That a kid could climb up if he had rope and his bright red climbing socks. Something like that would be floating around in my head like an earworm to a song I hadn't ever heard because it hadn't been written yet. Sometimes I woke up with a song fragment echoing around in my head. If there was just a concept, phrase, symbol, or visual image in my head, then all of the sound stuff would have to be constructed afterwards. But often, not always, these words came with some sort of a rhythm which helped guide what kind of strumming was going to happen on the guitar and what kind of phrasing would be had in the vocals, which parts could be held notes and which would not, which might definitely end lines and which would not... Then I'd have to choose a key and tempo and start messing around on guitar, making something with my meager skills that would kind of work. Quite often, though, there'd be part of the tune drifting around in there with the words. So into my head, of a whole cloth, sometimes while sleeping, things would form in there. Things like... Hello down there, you see I'm a little down, down there. Why don't you come up out of there? And a cat with low self-esteem. I like to sing. He likes to sing. Vagina. Vagina. I came back home, ran up the stairs, and I sang three songs. To a girl who wasn't there. Dingoes never pay for nothing. They forget their wallets if you take them uptown. Dingoes always tell their mamas so they're not much fun to hang around. If you know what I mean. He boils and boils and boils till he goes pop. He boils and boils and boils till he goes pop. Sunday's coming. So it's time to get Christian. Sometimes I'd have a tune in my head that fell outside my usual three or four chord guitar stuff, and I'd have to go hunting around the fretboard for what it was exactly that needed to happen on guitar for that thing in my head to go by. 
And I'm walking home alone with the wind screaming in my ears. Screaming in my ears. Maybe someday I'll gaze on heaven. But now my life is cold and empty. I'm all alone, walking home in darkness. I gave my best, and now it's gone. And I had my limits. I had very basic music theory. I composed pretty much exclusively on guitar with simple chords and scales, which tends to lend itself to simpler things than, say, a piano. And I had just about two octaves to sing in, with a part of cheated octave in a falsetto range. So with my voice, I pretty much had boom, 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 whoa, and that's it. Now, 99% of the male vocals you hear go an octave or two higher than my non-falsetto voice goes at all. And 99% of those vocals either don't use my lower octave at all, and maybe don't even have it. If I were a bass singer, I'd be able to go perhaps an octave or two lower still, and my lowest notes would be rich and full rather than reaching for them like I have to do. But the fact is, my vocal range is fairly limited, and limited to a lower register than is useful for much of the music I'd want to perform. Too low for lead vocals, mostly. No impressive, big, held high notes for me. When I was teaching myself to sing on my own compositions, Canadian 90s pop stars The Crash Test Dummies came out, and people went on and on about how incredibly deep they thought Brad Roberts' voice was. Inhumanly deep. Like a bullfrog. Thing is, it's not that it's particularly deep. That's just the standard baritone range that many male voices like mine have. It's the breath control and compression and vowel shaping he's putting into it. It's the tone not the pitch. It's the audio equivalent of an optical illusion. So Brad didn't just sing, Once there was this kid who got into an accident and couldn't come to school, but when he finally came back... No, in exactly that pitch, Brad sang, once there was this kid who got into an accident and couldn't come to school, but when he finally came back. This made me realize that lead singers were kind of like voice actors in cartoons. They took their voices into places far removed from how they spoke naturally. Just like with cartoon characters, it made their voices instantly recognizable, unique, and fun to imitate. For many, their voice sounded a bit odd to begin with, but soon enough, you've got them singing on every single successful song in a voice as distinct as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Tweety Bird, Marvin the Martian, Yosemite Sam, or any other cartoon character all voiced by the same guy, Mel Blanc. Can you feel the love tonight? Or... You are always on my mind. Or, stop spreading the news. Or, why are there so many songs about rainbows? Or, eh, 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 still alive. Or, do, do hast, do hast mate. Or, there is a town in North Ontario with dream, comfort, memory to spare. Or, everybody knows that the dice is loaded 
Everybody knows the good guys lost. I had to decide what kind of voice fit each song of mine, and I had this feeling that it had to be at least a bit different from my speaking voice. And what used to happen back in the day was you'd write a song or want to learn songs from the radio, and you'd make successful social connections with other people who had the talent, transportation, instruments, and interest to want to be in a band with you. And most bands last about as long as most high school romances. I never had much success at either of those. You'd meet up, connect, resolve to play together in future, and most often it wouldn't really ever happen. Or you'd meet up, practice a bit awkwardly, but it would never amount to anything lasting. With the bands, either. Can't, Can't you just, just pick, pick up, up your acoustic, acoustic guitar and, and sing, sing the, the songs, songs you've, you've written, written, people ask? Well... You can, but it's hard to get and keep people listening to that for long. Riveting, compelling vocal and stage performance is a talent quite distinct from coming up with song ideas, and it takes a very special song, too, to stand on its own like that, naked, as it were. A song that doesn't need drums or harmony or anything much. I have lived my whole life dreaming of writing a bunch of songs like that, and I've played live time and again, often at street festivals and open stages and random events like that, and I've had a chance to test drive what songs of mine and other songwriters I could pull off without anyone else accompanying me. For example, when the movie Shrek came out, I hit upon Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah and used to sing it fairly often way back then until I noticed that everyone who sang was starting to sing that one too. It's just a powerful song. Tied you to a kitchen chair She broke your throne She cut your hair From your lips She drew the hallelujah 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 The more people heard it everywhere, the more people decided to sing it. Eventually, it was masterfully sung at the Olympic Games by Canadian songstress Katie Lang. And although it's a pretty magic song, all right, people are tired of it after everyone's 10-year-old has sung it at talent shows and family gatherings. So I reluctantly decided to stick Hallelujah on the shelf. But that's the kind of song I want to write. Increasingly, many popular songs nowadays sound like modern church music and most of the backing music and ads and documentaries and YouTube videos do too. You know, the shut up, open your mind, and sit still and buy all of this kind of lullabies. Guitar that sounds like a room full of the edges from you too. Most of my songs didn't work, and I had never hoped to begin with to perform them with just a single voice and acoustic guitar. Just a single additional guitar or a backing harmony or a bass or a keyboard or something percussive really helps that lone voice and guitar so much. Most of my songs are written to be performed by a band that I'm not in. I can drop out and sing solo for one part of the song, and it might even make you think that the whole song should be done like that and trust you, you wouldn't get bored. Well, trust me, you would. I explained all this to platinum and gold album-selling Canadian rock star Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes, and he had this to say. I've just always wanted to be able to do something like write a song like Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah, where if I play it with acoustic guitar that I don't need anybody else, but most of my songs, they need someone else. Yeah, it's a tough call that way, you know, because it's sort of, uh... but you know, one thing I've found 
is almost any song, no matter how techno somebody thinks it might have to be or how, how technical, you can always take that. And that's, that's a skill I'd, I'd have to say that I've learned over the last probably dozen years is how to bring a song down to basics, down back down to an acoustic version, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not easy to do. It takes a lot of patience and you're always tempted to add way more too. As soon as you, yeah. get it, you know, like I say, that's what kind of happened with our Northern Pikes album that will be coming out next year. It originally started off to kind of be just really stripped down kind of campfire versions of mm-hmm. some of the Snow and June songs, but it became, it became more than that. And they basically, it became just different versions of the yeah. Snow and June songs more than anything as, a, as opposed to necessarily stripped down versions of them. Controversial Opinion Time. Here is the most controversial opinion seemingly that I hold, the one that seems to upset the most people when not merely discussed as a theoretical thing that Jesus casually might have said one time and happens to have ended up in the Bible, but we don't actually have to do that. Here it is. If you do or say something that will make you look good to others, any supposed value that might otherwise have been part of you doing or saying that thing is thereby cheapened and often almost completely negated by your using it to signal your virtue. In fact, you just might get caught using some theoretical good from the act itself to justify doing it to make yourself look like a better person than you actually are. If you say something you don't really believe in order to sound like the kind of person who believes good things, whether the ideology is religious, political, philosophical, or scientific, not only are you a liar, you are grit in the gears of the machine that is trying to run on that ideology, rather than energy giving motive power to it, or even just functioning as a lubricant. You're like a pebble someone dropped into the gears. Doesn't matter if it's Christianity, veganism, communism, transactivism, or multiple sclerosis research. If you give money to the poor or toward cancer research in order to show the world on social media that you are the kind of person who does this and you have a wristband and a t-shirt and a bumper sticker and a hashtag that announces this to the world, Jesus said you're doing it wrong. It's not what he wants. Neither your motive nor your reward are easing a fellow human being's situation, but rather marketing what kind of person you yourself want people to buy into. And... Check the men you know who themselves, rather than their fond wives and girlfriends, tell other men, even sometimes with no women around, that they are proud feminists. Watch those guys, no matter how rich and famous they are. Even if their millions were made cranking out scores of hits with hot, strong, sexually empowered female protagonists and people of color, which folks got to know you well enough to see what kind of person you really were and have stories once the millions have been made by all. And when you do something to supposedly raise awareness that something bad is, in fact, bad, what are you actually raising awareness of? Something that most likely has to do mostly with you. It's not fair to go ahead and actually start the album in an episode numbered zero and seen as a preamble. So the interview bits, the songs on the Death in Tiny Spoonfuls album, the discussion of depression and so on are all coming up next. Check it out. Everybody has to.